Our scripture for this morning comes from Isaiah 54 through 9. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened my ears. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore have I set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Thanks, everyone. Good morning. My name is Heather, one of the pastors here. Welcome to you all. Just put my tea down. It's always good to, you know, have a bit of peppermint tea in the morning. Um, Johanny is a member of our community and she um, is helping to facilitate the change groups that we have here. She um, moved about a year ago from the Dominican Republic, used to work for the government there and she's a counsellor. And this fall, we were having conversations about change group and the point of change group is that we would grow in insight um, and as we have insight, then that helps us to grow in other ways. You know, having clarity about what we feel, why we're feeling what we feel, what we're thinking, helps us to be able to take steps and risks towards growth. And so it's basically about learning the language of the interior. That's what change groups are about. So that when we're in proximity with the exterior, there's some congruence that's happening between that dance. And so we were talking about what, what materials could help grow in that language. And so in the fall, um, we looked at the Atlas of the Heart by Brené Brown, because that's the point, is to learn the language of the interior. And that's what she talks about in her book, Atlas of the Heart. And one thing that she says in this book is, what happens when we feel competing emotions at the same time? Like That's the question that kind of opens up this chapter. What happens when there are competing emotions or contradictory thoughts that happen at the same time? And in reality, that's part of what makes us human, is that we have these competing emotions or contradictory thoughts. And oftentimes when that happens, we get uncomfortable or irritated or we feel vulnerable. That's what happens when those competing emotions or thoughts show up in us. And I think the season leading up to Christmas that the church calls Advent can be like that. Lots of competing emotions. Family, right? Tons of gratitude, shared meals potentially, and also lots of complexity in family. These competing emotions that can show up when we enter into the holiday season. Potentially there's loss. Or disappointment, um, especially when 
the expectations of life, we haven't really lived up to those. And there's all kinds of expectations loaded into a holiday season. Competing emotions. Glad for my family. Also, I'm not glad for my family. I'm sad about the loss. And also, this moment is beautiful. It's also those contradictory thoughts. Why is it this way? Why is the world this way? It's good. Oh, there's so many things that are good. Oh, it's bad. There's so many things that are bad, right? It's all happening. Contradictory. And in that Alice of the Heart, she goes on to say, when we are faced with information and emotions like that, that are contradictory, the instinct is to make the discomfort go away by resolving it. And the greater the dissonance, the greater the pressure is to resolve it. And there are all kinds of ways that we like to resolve those contradictions inside of us. We reject the information, whether it's emotional or thinking. We avoid it altogether. And sometimes that we, tell, we just tell ourselves that it's not that important. Or just disregard it or go numb. And there are all kinds of ways that we like to reject the information and it doesn't really help us all that much. I'm going to quote here, here. The problem starts when we don't have the skills or the experience to tolerate the uncertainty and ambiguity and we give in to the cravings for neat, mutually exclusive categories. There's nothing more limiting than tapping out of tension and oversimplifying the thoughts and feelings that have the power to help us understand who we are and what we need. The paradox, the complication, helps us understand who we are and what we need. Isaiah is the, the passages that we're looking at during the Advent season invites us specifically not to tap out. The season of Advent and the songs of Isaiah invite us specifically in. These songs are full of longing and lament and the themes of Isaiah come through and they come out of a people who were in exile under an empire that is Babylon. And they are living in the light of harmful actions done to them and actions of harm that they have done to others. And the songs that they sing and that we've been listening to over the last couple of weeks are full of forgottenness and weariness and disappointment which, as Johnny said last week, is not dismissed as faithlessness. They are holding the dissonance of their lived experience up alongside God speaking the language of making new and restoration and freedom and belonging. And they're holding those two things together, that tension And their invitation in that tension is not to look away, 
from the uncertainty and the sorrow and the anger and the doubt, but also not to let go of love and trust and relationship with God and with others and with themselves. But they let all of it have the power, all of it come together to have the power to help them understand who they are and what they need. And life, and this season in particular, I bet we also come with doubt and hope. Uncertainty and expectation. Joy and sadness. And it's all mixed up together because we, like them, live in a turbulent world. The world that we live in brings up this complexity, and these competing emotions and thoughts. And under this pressure, the challenge is to stay open. In Atlas of the Heart, she says, when we engage in paradox, when we we accept competing elements, it has the possibility to foster creativity and innovation. So when we don't dismiss too quickly, when we stay open... We engage in the joy of possibility. And that's what today's passage, Isaiah 50, that was read by Megan, invites us to do, is to stay open to possibility. And there are three units to Isaiah 50, and in the whole passage, it's like the three units aren't really connected. But in verses 4 and 9, there is this between four and nine, there is this figure that emerges. It becomes very clear who this figure is. And that's going to be our focus today, this figure, this servant figure that emerges out of the, the pages and lets us see them. From verses four and five, God helps this figure and teaches them to have a tongue that knows how to speak to the weary. It's a a word that encourages and enlivens and empowers weary and tired people. And God doesn't just help that figure speak that word to the weary. It also um, helps that figure listen and speak out of that listening. In the, the text it says, Yahweh wants or like makes me want to listen kind of open to listening, ready to listen, which is its own kind of gift, right? When things are pressing us on all kinds of sides, often our capacity for listening reduces. So to be in a place where we want and are open to listening is its own kind of gift. So this figure has a tongue that speaks words to the weary and also has an openness to listen. And then God helps this figure who emerges when dishonored and under threat of being condemned. He comes into court 
and the accusers disappear like cloth that moths eat up. Isn't that so cool? Like, I think about my grandma, and she had, like, these old mothballs. Nobody really has mothballs anymore. I don't even know if moths exist anymore. But I do remember, like, my, mo- my grandma having this, like, woolen clothing. And maybe moths are just really into wool. I don't know. But, like, there's holes all over it, right? That's why they have mothballs. That's why grandmas smell like mothballs. Because there was an actual thing that happened. The moths would eat up the garments and the cloth. Like, what a cool image here, Right? You go into court and you think your accusers are going to do something and then there's just like nothing there. That's the image that's been given here in this passage. So cool, poetry. Who's given a whoop to poetry? (laughs) Yes, please. That's the thing about this language here. It is a poem. It's a song. And it's deeply grounding. And it's especially when the figure merges out of a place of confusion and dissonance and exhaustion and when pushed and pulled, like losing this sense of grounding, it's this moment where this figure kind of reminds everyone who they are and what they need. And so the big question that has to be asked is who, who is this figure? Who is Isaiah 50 about? It's a poem. It's like a song. And songs can speak about a lot of different things all at the same time. Because they're layered. Songs and poetry is layered, which makes them like powerful and personal. Makes it large and intimate. And so Israel is called God's servant. And Jesus is also the servant because he takes up the story of Israel. And as we are taken up into this story, we too take up the significance of this poem. It's powerful and it's personal. But whomever we interpret the servant as that emerges, this figure that emerges out of this chaos, there's another figure who's alongside, Yahweh. The God who stands with to help. And this help comes in the midst of tension, and rather than tapping out or oversimplifying, this song helps to attune to the kind of power that roots in identity. So let's take a more close look. Verse 4, He, prior to that it told us it's the Sovereign Lord, Yahweh Adonai, God's name. Yahweh Adonai has taught me how to help those who are tired. That's the NIV. The New International Reader's Version says, He has taught me to know the word that sustains the weary. That's a good word to know, right? I was just talking to a couple of people this morning and they're like, we're tired. 
lots of reasons why we get tired and this season in particular. He, Yahweh Adonai, has taught me how to help those who are tired. Given a word for the weary. And in this context, these people are exhausted. Babylon is the empire that has dislocated them and there is anxiety and pressure that comes from that empire. And contextually, this word is likely not simply a caring word, but an empowering, holding, and sustaining word. Because the larger context is they, they've been displaced, and so the question of who they are is magnified. Their identity is, is under question. And when displaced and your roots are pulled out, Everything that is familiar is upended. That anxiety of who am I and what I'm about is deep and deeper still. That religious place has been destroyed, their faith center. The place that they call home, their land, is no longer home. And the familiarity of rhythms and routines, what is known is gone. And all of this is making them weary, not just physically, but in terms of an understanding of who they are. That fight to stay strong in who you are. And it's into that dissonance that this word comes. Reminding and restating and narrating who they are. And we need that kind of word in a context where our sense of who we are is at risk. Any refugee will tell you that. Any circumstance that pulls us away from ourselves will tell us that. That we need a word that reminds us who we are. There are many circumstances that pull us away from ourselves. We feel anxious and uncertain and lost and we need that sustaining word. And so the servant not only has that word to give, the servant also listens and stands in the groundedness of that word. And we know that because in the midst of violating, shaming, and belittling actions, and the force behind a lot of the words that are in this passage are that this person is, is being striven against. There's, there's an accusation, and it is coming. It is, the accusation is like striving against this person. No wonder you're tired and exhausted. There's all... This circumstances going on, and then there is this personal accusation. One commentator said that it is possibly the actions of Babylon that are going against this servant, but it is more likely other members of the exile community, which is potentially more painful. Right? Those we know or we think that we know us, and now against us. That adds on top of what is already tumultuous. 
And that happens when our world is upside down. Often we turn against one another. And, and the force of this contending and striking accusation, and it culminates finally in the words of condemnation, a threat of condemnation. So we know that this servant is standing in that sense of identity because right after all of that comes all of this additional swirl. Which culminates in potential condemnation. And a condemning voice is the kind of voice that tears down and destroys and ruins. Guilt is one thing, condemnation something totally other. Guilt is about behavior. And there's always ways to move through guilt. Can repair, can restore, can renew out of guilt. That is always God's heart towards us to restore and to renew and to repair and to belong both with each other and with God. Israel's worth and our worth does not hinge on if they or we did or do something wrong. Let's be clear about that. Worth does not hinge on guilt. Worth and identity are in a different category altogether. completely different category. Condemnation is about badness. And we as humans take up the language of badness of condemnation often, about others, how bad people are. It's a statement of value, of worth. We hear it a lot. The language of badness. We also use that language against ourselves. We condemn ourselves. Condemnation is the kind of voice that convinces us that we are worthless. And for Israel, their circumstances and location had the power to convince them of that. That they were worthless. They're not worth anything. What is that for you? What is it that is a part of your life that has the power to convince you that you're worthless? There's probably something, an experience, a relationship, a disappointment. And the thing that creeps into that space is the voice of condemnation. What is that for you? The figure in Isaiah 
emerges out of harsh circumstances when worth and identity are questioned and responds like this. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. God is near. Yahweh Adonai is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Paul echoes this in Romans chapter 8 where every attempt to condemn, whether it's by sin or law or death or life, is empty. Because God holds at arm's length shame and dishonor and condemnation. And God draws near. He holds those things at bay and draws near. And in that nearness helps. And the voice of condemnation disappears like clothes that are eaten up by moths. Basically saying that it's not substantial. There's, there's no strength to that. Like, think about a little moth just, like, eating away at your clothes. It's, like, it's, like, it's just inconsequential. It disappears. It has no strength to it. There was a time in my life where I received words from multiple people specific to one situation. And those words represented condemnation to me. Because they spoke directly to my identity. To my integrity. To who I am. You all know that feeling too, I bet. I'm going to try and look at my notes here. My dad visited in September with my mum. And in a conversation with him in my living room, I could feel myself losing grounding. Because some of the things that we were talking about activated these voice of condemnation. And I didn't have the capacity to stay in the conversation, which is rare for me. I'm usually pretty good at sticking things out. So I stood up, and like now, my eyes sprung tears, and I just looked at him, and I was like, I need a break from this conversation. 
and I walked into my room and I shut the door and I lay on my pillow and I just wept. I was trying to be really quiet because, you know, didn't, just didn't want to be near my dad in that moment. Don't want to talk about it. Don't want you to ask me about it. Don't want to even talk about what it was that activated this. Like, just go away from me. So I was in there for about 10 minutes and then I could hear him in, in the kitchen like faffing about. I was, like, I was like, what are you doing in there? Just go away. I need to be on my own. And then he came outside my door. If I get drippy, oh well. And he's like, Hev. Quiet. Don't want to talk to you, Popsy. Don't want to talk to you. Hev? Now I'm annoyed. Can't, can't you respect a boundary? So I got up. And I opened the door. And he was standing there. And he just pulled me close. Oh, thank you. That's exactly what I needed. He pulled me close. And he said, I love you. Very much. And then nothing else was said. He didn't ask me any questions. Didn't pry for details. Nothing else was said. Nothing else needed to be said. There are things in our lives that need to be disrupted so that we can be embraced. And sometimes there's things that have been done to us and the voices that we hear condemn us. And they need to be disrupted so that we can be embraced. And sometimes there's things that we've done and the voices that we hear condemn us. And they need to be disrupted so that we can be embraced. And sometimes circumstances are such, whether it's a job or family dynamics or a failure of some kind, and the voices that emerge out of those circumstances condemn us. And it needs to be disrupted so that we can be embraced. And that takes us believing which is hard to do. But these songs ask us to dare to do so. Walter Brueggemann, in his commentary on Isaiah, says this, Believing people, Jews and Christians, moreover, dare to imagine that the same Holy One who acted in that time and place in disruptive and embracing ways still continues to endure 
disrupt and embrace even now. The servant emerges in Israel's exile to disrupt and embrace. Jesus emerges in a stable in Bethlehem in the midst of Roman occupation in order to disrupt and embrace. And now, Missio, here, with Christmas decorations and carols and the dissonance of family and the turbulence of our world, this figure emerges out of this poem to tell us that we don't have to run away from the tension that is part of our lives, but that we might just be able to dare to believe that we have a holy one. A holy one who disrupts in order to embrace. This communion table, we're about to take communion, and it's a picture of Jesus disrupting so that we can be embraced. So as you come to this table in a minute, I want you to take the bread, dip it in the juice, or use the cup, or there's gluten-free at the end. And as you come, I want you to lean in. so that you can hear who you are and what you need. And we've been doing these Cadvent, the Cadvent, Advent candles, put the word together, made a new word, every week. And they represent something new with every week. And so on the table are unlit candles and you can also do this as a practice. And today, the Advent candle represents joy or the shepherds. And the shepherds were an unlikely group of people. And the shepherds' evening was disrupted with glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Their evening was disrupted so that they could be embraced. Today, you're invited to be disrupted. Whatever voices are in your head or whatever might make you feel like you're estranged from each other or from God, we're invited to be disrupted so that we can be embraced. So as you come to this table, take the bread, dip it in the juice and lean in. What is it that you need? Do you know who you are? And as you light that candle, may it be a picture of that disruption and of your being embraced. Let's pray. Jesus, we live in tension where things are dissonant and don't always make sense. And I thank you for this, it, this image of this figure that emerges out of Isaiah. An image that ends up rooting 
and identifying and reaffirming who we are. That we're the beloved. That you delight in that which you've made. And you move near always and you move close always and your intention is always to disrupt the things that would keep us from believing and trusting that we're loved, that we're wanted, that we belong. And so I pray today that, um, that somehow we would find our way to believing you, the Holy One, that you are still in our midst, that you still speak to those voices of condemnation, and that in your nearness you help to give a word to the weary, give us a sense of openness and groundedness in who we are. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.